just a reminder to us that we need to be devoted to knowing God, doing the work of seeking Him through His Word, and then applying it. Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown. Thank you for joining us for episode 23 of Working with the Word. We're excited to share more of the Bible's whole story with you today, and we hope that you've been enjoying this walk through the Bible, that it's helped you understand what God has been doing from the beginning to save us through Jesus. Today, we're overviewing the books of history, which take place around the period of the exile or a little bit after that. We're talking about Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So here's a short preview of what these three books are about. Ezra is going to show us the rebuilding of the temple. Nehemiah is going to show us the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. And Esther, as we're going to see, is a little bit different in that it shows us God rescuing the nation. So rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the city, and rescuing the nation. So let's get started with a quick review to remind us of why the exile happened to begin with. Let's go back all the way to the law. Remember in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1 and 2, Moses says to the people, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Moses is going to go on for the next few verses to describe other various blessings and somewhat more specific detail, but the general point of this section here in the beginning of Deuteronomy 28 is, if you obey, God will bless you when you get in the land. Now, there comes a but statement, though, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. So Moses goes on to describe now in some detail various types of curses. Here's one of those statements that Moses makes of the curses in Deuteronomy 28, verse 25 and 26. He says, The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. You shall be a whore to all the kingdoms of the earth, and your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth and there shall be no one to frighten them away. There's this idea that Moses is establishing here in Deuteronomy 28, that if you are faithless to God, God says these are the types of things you can expect to have happen to you. And in fact, that's what we see happen as the people struggle with idolatry, as they struggle with their greed and their pride, as they struggle with their sin. We've seen in 722 BC how Israel goes into Assyrian captivity and how Judah goes into Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C. We read last week from the end of 2 Chronicles 36, some sections that talk about that, how they refused to listen to the prophets that God sent to try to turn them around to get them to repent, and so they went into that captivity. But here's the end of 2 Chronicles 36, verses 22 and 23. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it into writing. 
Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. We find almost that exact same wording as we begin our first book for today, the book of Ezra. So let's talk Ezra chapter 1 through Ezra chapter 6. As we look at those first three verses, or we consider those first three verses of chapter 1, they're almost exactly the same as Second Chronicles 36, 22 through 23. Remember, the idea here of Ezra is really about rebuilding the temple and restoring the worship. So God's plan leading up to this return of the remnant round 1 happens around 536 B.C. It says in Jeremiah 25, verse 12 and 13, something we referenced last week, Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. And then he goes on to talk about how the people are going to return to Jerusalem. In Isaiah chapter 44, we see even Isaiah prophesying about Cyrus. Isaiah spoke of Cyrus when he says, Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. That's amazing to see in Isaiah 44 and verse 28. Yeah, just, just how specific he is about which king it is that's going to let the people go. And, you know, one of the concepts that you're, you're speaking of often there is fulfillment. Mm-hmm. God fulfilled his promise that the people would be cursed, that they would be scattered throughout to other nations. And now he's fulfilling another part of his promise that whenever they would cry out to him, they would turn to him with all of their heart that he would restore them and they would return to the land and become great again. So, you know, God is faithful as we've tried to emphasize in, in several of the books, God is faithful to all the things that he says. Absolutely. So let's get into what Cyrus does for the people. We see under Cyrus's decree that about 42,000 people returned to Jerusalem under the main leadership of Zerubbabel and Jeshua here as described in Ezra chapter 1 through Ezra chapter 6, again with that main focus of rebuilding the temple. Now, this is something that Cyrus did with pretty much all of the exiles that were under his kingdom or under his empire. So other nations as well, we know from history, have received similar decrees from Cyrus. It seems Cyrus's goal was just kind of a, rather than oppressing you religiously, I'm going to let you have some religious rights. And hopefully, as you pray to your God on my behalf, hopefully I'll just get the most gods on my side that things will work out well for me in history. But even with all of that information known, we see that God can use this time and use this man and use this purpose for his plan, for his glory. So once the people get back to Jerusalem and they eventually set up the altar, they offer these sacrifices, and then they're going to lay the foundations of the temple in Ezra chapter 3. But this is a bittersweet moment for the people who actually remember the glory of the former temple. Some people who might have still been around in 586 who saw the original temple being sacked and burned and and the Jerusalem city being ransacked and besieged by the Babylonians. And so as they look at this new temple, they see that it does not match up to the former's glory. There's this expression towards the end of chapter 3 how there's this great shouting and there's this great noise and commotion. And some of that is full of the shouts of joy and praise that the temple foundation has been laid for those who are looking at the foundation. But there are some who are looking at the foundation and they're weeping loudly. And people can't really seem to tell what they're weeping about, but it sounds like that they're weeping because 
They're just not looking at something that reminds them of what they used to see with Solomon's temple and all of that glory there. It's a sad moment for them to see what their temple looks like now. But as we end chapter 3, chapter 3 puts all that together and it says, The people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. You should be cueing some ominous music in your background of your mind. I'm someone who likes to think in, you know, if this was a TV episode or a TV series or a movie, this is kind of the end of an act or the end of an episode, and it's kind of this this good slash bittersweet moment for some, but as they're making all this commotion, there are all these enemies around Jerusalem who are now aware about what's going on, and they're not happy about it. So as we get into chapter 4, it introduces the villains of our story, the people surrounding Jerusalem. They try to, first of all, deceive the Israelites into thinking that they're on the same side and that they want to help rebuild and worship God just like them. But there are some things that are given away to say, no, you're not really on our side in this. This is our responsibility. This is what God wants us to do. So we're going to build this temple. After they can't deceive the people, they try to discourage them by making them afraid to complete their task. But then when that doesn't really seem to work either, they simply just lobby government officials to stop the building. They write to letters and say, hey, did you read about this city? Did you know that there was a time in their past that they rebelled against people and they rebelled against kings? And if you allow them to build this temple, they're going to do that again. And so building gets shut down for 14 years, unfortunately. But we see that God still wants his people to worship and obey him, and that they were sent back to have an opportunity to rebuild the temple, and they're not doing that. So God sends the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to get them back on track. We see the series of letters that go back and forth between chapters 4 and chapters 5. It stops the building, kind of who gives you the right to build, is there authorization to do this? But ultimately, God sends his word through his prophets to tell the people, this is what you need to be doing. You need to be doing my work of building the temple. Now, it's not that God needs a temple in order to survive or in order to, you know, be who he is as God, but it's what he wants people to do as it's important for them to reestablish this place of worship as they're trying to get back on track of worshiping God. So the prophets Zechariah, the prophets Hagar, a very important part of this story where more of their messages are detailed in their books, something we can talk about a little bit later. But as we see chapter 6, then, they ultimately see the foundation of the temple being built upon, and the temple is finished around 516 B.C. There's this great celebration of joy. They celebrate the Passover feast. They overcome this opposition. There's some difficulties. There's some struggles. We see a lack of faith or maybe a lack of discipline on their people's part throughout this time. But ultimately, the most important thing to see is that God's providence is behind this whole project. In chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 1, verse 5, we see the phrase, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus or of the people. We see in chapter 5, verse 5, the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. In chapter 6, verse 22, the Lord turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them. God is making these things happen for his people, providing for them and taking care of them. Now, as we end chapter 6, we break there because there's actually about a 60-year gap between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7. So, Emerson, why don't you take over for us and help us to learn a little bit more about what happens in Ezra chapter 7 through Ezra chapter 10. Yeah, so it's not until chapter 7 that we're actually introduced to Ezra himself. So, Ezra is going to lead the return of exiles round 2. And so, Ezra is a priest who is commissioned by the king of Persia to lead this second group of exiles to return. And he's got a very special job, very significant job. 
he's to teach the law of God to the people. When he arrives in Ezra chapter 9, we find that he discovers that the people have intermarried with some of the other nations, and which is a big problem because that's exactly uh, what led them to unfaithfulness to begin with. You remember in 1 Kings 11, it says that Solomon's many wives turned his heart away from the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so you have this need for the people to understand the law of God and to do it. And so one of the themes that we find at the end of Ezra is sin and repentance. But also you see another emphasis, you know, just more emphasis on the providence of God, like you were emphasizing at the beginning that God is working through all of this to fulfill his promises. You see the phrase, the hand of the Lord was upon us, and that God protected Ezra and his his company as they made this five-month trek from Persia down to Jerusalem. So God is with them. Now, I want to make a little bit of a detour here because this is a podcast about Bible study, and We've referenced Ezra before, and I feel like since we're here, we cannot pass up the opportunity to talk about him again. It says in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Ezra is such a good example of what we need to strive to be in our own study of the Word of God. Ezra's a good example for three reasons. Number one, he made a personal commitment to know God. If you remember way back in episode one, we talked about the importance of finding your why. And I think Ezra found his why and he stuck to it. He wanted to know God's word. It says that he set his heart. Number two, he did the hard work of following through with that, of reading and studying. It says that he set his heart to study the law of the Lord. Studying the Bible, reading the Bible, is sometimes difficult. It's challenging. It requires discipline and work, which takes us to 2 Timothy 2.15, which we began this podcast with, or building it around this idea, Mm -hmm. being workers of the word. It says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And so we started this podcast in part to encourage and motivate ourselves to do the work and to encourage our listeners as well. Do the hard work like Ezra did. But most importantly, Ezra is an example of someone who applied it. First to himself, it says that he set his heart to study and to practice it, and then to help others to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Application is the most important step in Bible study. It's important for us to read. It's important for us to study the context and try to dig into it, understand the meaning there. But all of that means nothing if we're not living that in our own lives. So just a reminder to us that we need to be devoted to knowing God, doing the work of seeking him through his word, and then applying it. So let's get back to the book of Ezra itself. What does Ezra, how does Ezra help us understand the whole story of the Bible? Well, I think one of the big points is that God is gracious, right? Mm -hmm. That the people have come back because they have sinned and God is graciously forgiving. He's, He's giving them a fresh start like he does with us. Whenever we sin and we reap the consequences of that sin, He's willing to give us another start as well, to refresh us. And you also see God pointing the people to something greater in Ezra, 
So we were talking about Ezra chapter 3, how when they laid the foundation, there was a mixed emotion. There was joy. There was also grief. And that was a big accomplishment, but it was not as great as what they wanted it to be. So the old men were weeping in Ezra 3. In Haggai chapter 2 and verse 3, it says, Who among you is left who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you now see it? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? I, I think certainly they, they looked at that and they said, this is nothing like what Solomon built. But in verse 9 of that chapter, it says, The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord. So in, in Ezra, what you don't see, what you saw whenever Solomon built the temple, even when Moses built the tabernacle, you saw the glory of the Lord filling the temple. That doesn't happen in Ezra. And the point is, God is with the people, but he wants them to look to another temple that's coming, a greater temple. And that, of course, leads us to Jesus eventually. That's getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but Ezra does help us see that there is something greater that God has in store for the people. So let's get into our third book, or really our second book, third part, Nehemiah. (laughs) This is Return of the Exiles, round three, about 70 years after the temple was completed. Now, most likely, Nehemiah was born during the time of captivity. So he never saw his homeland of Jerusalem. He maybe heard about it through the teachings and the stories of others. But as we look at the story of Nehemiah in this book, Nehemiah is a leader if there ever was one, someone who is passionate about doing God's will as well as stirring up others to do the same. He doesn't just have that passion and keep it to himself. He also says, what can I do to get other people to be passionate about doing work for the Lord? So upon hearing the news that the walls of Jerusalem are still in shambles, Nehemiah cries out to God in prayer, as he often does in this book, praying to God for for wisdom or for guidance or for help. And we see that by God's hand is given permission from King Artaxerxes to go and rebuild the walls. When we get to Nehemiah chapter 3, we get this list of names. We've had a couple of lists of names throughout Ezra and Nehemiah that are some of our, maybe we speed read or very quickly turn a page once we see what's there. Something we can emphasize about Nehemiah chapter 3, though, is the teamwork that goes on in Nehemiah's project and how Nehemiah has brought people together to do God's work. Approximately 30 times we see the phrase next to him or after him. We see God's people are working together on rebuilding the wall. Now, like Zerubbabel and like Jeshua, Nehemiah faces much opposition during this project. It's not like he just goes and whips up the wall in four days because, you know, there's no issues whatsoever. There are external threats. There are the people who surround the city of Jerusalem who want to see the people of Israel fail, who want to see them not rebuild the city. And we see more of them trying to either discourage them or taunt them or bring in fear or sometimes even trying to actually kill Nehemiah or trying to get Nehemiah to do something that would ruin his character. But Nehemiah doesn't fall to any of that. He continues to have faith in God. We see internal issues. We see doubts and safety from the people at times of, man, should we be doing this? We're worried about our own security. We see sinful conduct that Nehemiah has to deal with, not just in greediness as they're building the project, but also even afterwards, there's sin that needs to be resolved and dealt with. But Nehemiah is an example of bravery As we see someone who says in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 4, Do not be afraid of these enemies. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, 
your homes. You can see some action hero giving that speech and kind of a final act of a movie, getting people rallied up to fight and to build their work, to do what they're supposed to do. Nehemiah is that example here in the story, as well as an example of morality. It says in Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 9, He's speaking to some people who are struggling with their greed and taking advantage of others. He says, The thing you are doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Nehemiah is starting to lay the example by encouraging people, saying, Listen, this is what God expects for you to do, and you're not doing it. And he's willing to call people out and hold people accountable to God's will. So through Nehemiah's leadership and through the collective work of the people, the walls rebuilt in 52 days. If you gave me 52 days to remodel a bathroom, I don't think I'd have enough skill or ability to do (laughs) that. I would definitely need a team of people to work with that. But he rebuilds the walls of the whole city. Now, there's still work to be done. The city is not complete, but the walls are now back up. It was never just about the wall, though. Again, when we think about what God is doing in Ezra— He's rebuilding the temple. It's never just about the temple, and it's not just about the wall. If God wanted a city built, he could have built a city himself. It's about the people. He wants the people to be people who are going to be focused on him, to build up the worship, to obey, and to trust in him. So we get to this high point of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 8. We get a crossover as we introduce Ezra into the book, as he reads the law to the people. Now, as we read the law, that eventually leads us to see that there is some sin that needs to be repented of in Nehemiah chapter 9, and the people are seeking to maintain that covenant with God then of, you know what, we're going to make the right choices. Again, we've seen some issues at intermarriage that shouldn't have happened or shouldn't be going on, leaving that behind. But as we see, Nehemiah was on a time clock from Artaxerxes. He wasn't allowed to be there just indefinitely. He mentioned at the beginning of the book, I'm going for such and such time, I'm going to need such and such resources. There's a lot of other lessons and people who have done great work talking about the leadership of Nehemiah and how there are great things we can learn as leaders today. But from there, Nehemiah goes back to Susa, but he hears about a lot of the work that's gone south. We read about that in Nehemiah chapter 13. There's working and selling on the Sabbath. There's appeasing of Israel's enemies. There's withholding the Levites' portions and more stuff going on, more sin going on. So all Nehemiah can do is pray for the people. And at the end of the book, he says, remember me, O my God, for good. I've done the good that I can. Nehemiah is very quick in the beginning of the book to even admit that he is someone who struggled with sin. He knows that the reason they're in captivity is because of sin. He says that all that I've done, God, remember me for good. What's our whole story connection here from our five-minute wrap-up or five-minute review or summarization of Nehemiah? Our whole story connection is, again, God's providence and grace, how it provides opportunity for his people to work together according to his plan, and how God helps his people to see what they need to know through the instruction of his word. I mean, Nehemiah is great to see them build a wall, but it's great to see their attitude towards God's word over and over from chapter 8 on, how it seems like regularly they're reading the word of God together, listening to Ezra or one of the priests read the word, and that's cutting into their hearts. And that's such an important part of what they're going to be as God's people. How much more important it will be for people who heed the word when he comes in the flesh. Again, thinking about Jesus as he is the word. Just before we get to the last book, Esther, one of the things that is interesting when you compare and contrast Ezra and Nehemiah, the people, is how different their personalities are. So in Ezra chapter 9, when Ezra hears about the people intermarrying, he responds by 
pulling out his own hair, and he puts on sackcloth and ashes, and he fasts, and he mourns. But in Nehemiah chapter 13, when he hears about the people intermarrying, he goes to the people, and he starts beating them, and he starts pulling out their hair. So both of these men are used by God in their different personalities to be leaders. So which of those would I be? I don't know. Would I pull out my own hair, pull out other people's hair? I don't know. So this brings us to the book of Esther, which chronologically takes place between Ezra chapters 6 and 7. It's helpful to remember that because just because it comes after the book of Nehemiah just doesn't happen necessarily right there. So the book of Esther is very different from Ezra and Nehemiah for several reasons. The setting is different. It doesn't take place in Jerusalem or Palestine. Instead, it takes place back in the capital of Persia. So meanwhile, what's what's happening back there whenever they're rebuilding the temple? And the other thing that's different is that God's name is never mentioned. Not one is God specifically mentioned in the book. But having said that, the same theme of God's providential blessing and protection is seen between the lines at every turn of the story. Mm -hmm. God is there behind the scenes working providentially to protect his people. Esther is the story of how God rescues his people who are on the brink of annihilation. So I'm going to do my best to try to summarize the book of Esther, the story, in a very concise way. It begins with this great feast, and the king of Persia is throwing a party to show his glory and his grandeur. And on the last day of the feast, he calls his wife, Queen Vashti, and he wants to show her off, but she refuses. And so he disposes of her, and he's in search of a new queen. Just business as usual for a king, just (laughs) searching for a new wife, right? And of all people, Esther, the orphaned Jew, is chosen. Now, Esther's cousin Mordecai overhears a plot to assassinate the king. There's a couple of guards at the gate who are planning to kill the king. And so Mordecai informs Esther about that and consequently saves the king. And Mordecai's name is written down in the history books as the one who saved the king. Now, a government official named Haman becomes angry at Mordecai because Mordecai won't bow down to him. And so Haman goes to the king and he persuades the king that all the Jews are just terrible people and they all need to be exterminated from the empire. So the king agrees and he writes a decree. He sends it out and chaos ensues. When Mordecai hears of this, he sends word to Esther. And remember, Esther is a Jew. And Esther has not revealed her ethnic background yet. The king does not know that she is a Jew. And he says to Esther that deliverance must come for the Jews from somewhere. And so you must not remain silent at this time. And in this famous statement in chapter 4, verse 14, he says to her, Who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this? Now, this is one of those times when God is not mentioned, but he's right there behind the scenes. Yeah. Why was Esther chosen to be king? And why was Mordecai the one who overheard, as we're going to see? There's a catch to this, though. Esther cannot enter the king's presence uninvited. And so she's taking a huge risk to go into the king's presence. And thankfully, he extends his scepter to her. She is allowed to come in. And Esther doesn't immediately make her request before the king. Instead, she invites him and Haman to this fancy feast that she's going to put on. Now, Haman 
being the proud man that he is, he is just really flattered of all people that he would be chosen to dine with the queen and the king themselves. But he's still fuming mad about Mordecai. So he goes home and he boasts about the fact that he's been invited to this feast to his family and his friends. And they tell him, well, you're a powerful man. Why don't you build a gallows to hang Mordecai on it the next morning? And so that's what he does. He builds this gallows. And that night, the king can't sleep. And so he calls his servant to read him a bedtime story from the king's (laughs) records. And lo and behold, he hears about Mordecai several years before saving his life. And he asks, what has been done for this man? And they say to him, well, nothing's been done to honor him. So the very next morning, in a very hilarious twist of irony, Haman is coming to the king to ask permission to hang Mordecai. And the king asks, what should be done to the man that the king wishes to exalt? And Haman thinks to himself, boy, who would the king want to exalt more than me? And so he says, well, let all these great things be done to him. And the king says, Haman, do that for Mordecai. And so Haman has to parade Mordecai around on this great horse through the city and exalt him. And eventually, that day, Esther gets around to revealing her request to save her people from the king's command. And she exposes that Haman is the one who has come up with this evil plot to exterminate the Jews. And then he himself, Haman, is hanged on the gallows that he built for Mordecai. So really, really interesting story about how God is working to protect his people. And then even beyond that, we see that the king's decree is still in place, that there is still this expectation of the Persians have the right to go and to massacre all these Jews. But the king, instead of being able to remove that, just simply says the Jews are able to defend themselves. And kind of in the final act of God's providence, as the Jews defend themselves, they're able to overwhelm the Persians who are expected to wipe them out, as it seems here in the story. So again, just an amazing story of God's providence here throughout the whole thing. Yeah, and it, and it raises the question of why did all those things happen, right? And how did they happen in such, such a sequence? And all of these coincidences, they've all fell into place so that Esther would be the one who would rise up at this time, so that Mordecai would be the one who would be written down in the history books and be honored, mm-hmm. and that all of these things just fit together because it's God's providence. God is working behind the scenes. Yeah. So what's our whole story connection here? Well, Esther is a lot more than just an interesting story. It's a testament to how God has continued to protect and preserve his people in keeping with his promises. So way back in Genesis 12, God told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, and that I will make you a great nation. Well, God has made Israel a great nation And for a while, they've kind of been on the bottom because they've been in captivity, but they're still protected. They're still God's people, not because of their perfection, but because of his own faithfulness and Mm -hmm. because of his grand plan to bring the Savior Jesus into the world through this nation. So as we get to our to be continued section, it's interesting talking about these books because Historically, we're pretty much at the end of the time of the Old Testament. There's not really going to be much else besides the book of Malachi that takes place time-wise after the events of Nehemiah. So God is about to, quote-unquote, go dark as far as new messages to his people. But that does not mean that God is done with his plan. No, very soon we're going to see that Jesus is going to arrive on the scene 
and the one who is the seed of Abraham, the one whom the Psalms point to, the one who is the Messiah that the prophets so often spoke of, is going to arrive. So let's continue to examine our Old Testaments and look at these books that we're going to see for the rest of the Old Testament, these poetic books, these prophetic books, again, from our International Space Station 250 miles above Earth type of view, and see what these books have to tell us about how God had a plan from the beginning to reconcile sinners to himself through the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of his son, Jesus Christ. So we want to leave you with a challenge today, and we want to challenge you to read Nehemiah chapter 8. Jeff was talking about how this is kind of the high point in the book of Nehemiah. The people have congregated together in the city, and they're reading the law, and they're renewing their commitment to the law and to God. Nehemiah chapter 8 is a great chapter to read to renew your commitment to reading and studying the Bible daily. This is an uplifting picture of the people and their devotion to the law. They, they stand and they read the law for several days on end. And so here we are a few months into this new year. And maybe at this point in the, in the year you've gotten behind or you've lost your motivation to do your daily Bible reading. So we want to challenge you in Nehemiah chapter 8 to read this and take it to heart and be encouraged to keep at it. Don't stop now. Keep going through your reading and studying of God's Word. Thank you for tuning in to Working with the Word today. On our next episode, we'll be discussing the book of Psalms as we start to get into the poetic books of the Old Testament. This book is rich with songs and prayers of praise, lament, trust, seeking justice, looking for the Messiah, and so much more. So until next time, if there are any further questions, topics, or books of the Bible you'd like for us to cover in future episodes of Working with the Word, you can find and reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter at Working with the Word, on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast, or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Man, all the, try, trying to go through all these names is really, really quickly is, is confusing. All right, I'm going to go back to that. <laughs> okay. Okay.